0: happy sunday morning and welcome to sunday coffee art design and architecture this show is coming to you from florida on a gorgeous sunday morning overlooking the gentle lapping waves on the gulf of mexico my motivation for this podcast channel is to broadcast good news stories interesting people and food for thought so pour yourself a nice hot cup of tea or coffee take a deep breath get cozy, and enjoy a break for some uplifting conversations. Today's book is Place and Prosperity, How Cities Help Us to Connect and Innovate by William Fulton, published by Island Press in 2022. Mr. Fulton is one of America's most established thought leaders in the field of urban planning. He served on Rice University's Kinder Institute for Urban Research and is the former mayor of Ventura, California. Hi, Bill. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Well, you know, I'm having a cup of Earl Grey tea this morning, and I always ask my guests, what's, uh, what's in your cup? Well,
1: I'm sitting on the other, in Texas on the other side of the Gulf of Mexico from you. In Houston and I uh, and I usually just have I I can't remember the it's coffee it's some brand of Brooklyn something but it's very strong
0: well it's from a city it sounds like it should be strong that's right that's right
1: well appropriately enough
0: appropriately enough Um, well can you tell the audience maybe um, a little bit more about yourself and your educational background
1: Yeah, um, I grew up in upstate New York in the Finger Lakes, uh, which is uh, the subject of a significant portion of the book. Uh, My first career was as a journalist. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter and a magazine writer for a long time. I got interested in cities and urban planning. I studied urban planning at UCLA. and I lived in Los Angeles and San Diego for many years. Um, And then I made a gradual transition in my career from being a writer and journalist to being a practicing urban planner, Uh, although I still do a lot of writing, and I consider myself a writer uh, first and foremost.
0: Well, I really enjoyed reading your book because it's just, it flows so nice. It's really well written. Thank you. Even your introduction was just really fascinating. Um but I always start with the first question is what was your motivation for writing this book?
1: My motivation for writing this book was twofold. Um the first well the, well the book is a collection of essays I've written over a long period of time about the two topics of place and prosperity. Um and I had two motivations. One was that I needed to get out some stuff I had inside myself about the town I grew up in and the experiences that I and others in that town had as a result of changes that occurred when I was young in the 70s uh, around urban renewal and other things that, that, uh, in my opinion, damaged the city at the time. But the other more important goal is to uh, help people who read the book who may not be professionals uh, in the field, may not be urban planners, may not be people focused on cities, to just be more aware of uh, the places that they uh, uh, occupy, what their surroundings are like, and and what and and the nature of what we urban planners call the built environment around them, the built places. You, and one of the things that I came to learn early in my career as a journalist and an urban planner, something I didn't realize when I was a kid is that this world we live in the street the houses we live in the streets we drive on um, the stores we shop in the places we walk around the places where we engage in recreational activities all of these things are the result of deliberate decisions uh, economic and political decisions by by governments by businesses by others to shape the world we live in we occupy that we consume that all the time But we don't often consciously think about the fact that that's what we're doing. And one of the things I wanted to do was highlight for people who may not be expert in this the fact that they are experts because they live and they they live in this in this world of built space all the time, and they consume it all the time. And I think they should be more aware of that and probably more critical of 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 what it's like as well.
0: Well, I was really drawn to your book, and I chose it because. I mean, I grew up in a town of, the irony of the name is Niceville. In in the panhandle of Florida? Yeah, Niceville.
1: Uh-huh. My brother, my brother used to live in Niceville because he was uh, stationed at Eglin Air Force Base.
0: Oh, it's a small world. Yes, that's how we got here. My dad was stationed there too. But I also, in my 30s, I got to travel to Europe and I did my own little grand tour. And it was my first exposure to paris france and i was just blown away by how walkable all of these places were and first thing i noticed in your book in the intro you talked about your hometown was actually was only six city blocks i mean that's amazing the 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 downtown was six city blocks
1: the the, the town itself was, mi- it was 30,000 30, people at the time. I mean, it was three miles by two miles, but the downtown area was six city blocks. Yes, that's right. And one of the things I say in the book is that when I was a kid, basically everything you would ever want or need uh, was in that downtown area, including you know all of the banks, most of the schools, um, all of the doctor's offices, all of the stores, et cetera.
0: Could you tell us more about your hometown?
1: Uh, I grew up in Auburn, New York, which is in the Finger Lakes. It's If you know New York State, it's kind of in the middle of a triangle from Syracuse, Rochester, and Cornell. It is a factory town, dates from the early 1800s. It had, it's declined in population some. It had about 30,000 people when I was growing up, maybe 35. Um, it was laid out along a river, um, as many cities are. The factories were all lined up along the river, uh, but but Auburn was the center of the this thriving manufacturing community and the surrounding agricultural land around it. It did not have a highly educated population. Uh, there were a lot of early 20th century immigrant groups there, Ukrainians, Poles, uh, and Italians in particular who worked in the factories. There was a, a, a strong black population because Auburn uh, was an abolitionist town and the hometown in the north of Harriet Tubman uh and it had a very tight-knit sense of community uh and almost anybody in auburn had uh, knew everyone else and and you could it was very self-contained you could almost do uh do anything you needed to do within this very limited space i one of the things i say in the book although i moved away my generation moved away My great-grandfather, my grandfather, and my father all lived and worked their entire lives within about one mile of where they grew up.
0: Wow, could you tell us more about that? Because, yes, uh, another question for me was, they came from Scotland?
1: Yes, the Fultons came from Scotland right after the Civil War. Auburn had a bunch of textile mills. Uh, In those days, the Scots were skilled textile workers, but many of them had been thrown out of work by power looms uh in the 19th century uh, my family came from a little town actually it's right near the glasgow airport now parts of my family still live in auburn more than 150 years later but it was a you know my great grandfather worked in a in a textile factory my grandfather was a jeweler my father was a salesman all very small town stuff
0: so in your first story you talked about being a cub reporter and you go to City Hall to cover the first urban planning project that you.
1: Yes, that's right. I admit, right, and it was really, yeah. This is the very beginning of the book. I'm 18 years old. I'm a cub reporter for the local newspaper. I walk out of the um, uh, newspaper office to walk over to the City Hall to cover the City Council meeting about urban renewal. And as I say, it was like this is 1974 or so. I was walking through a war zone. Uh, because at this uh, uh, urban renewal was tearing down much of the downtown. And um, at the same time, New York State Department of Transportation was building an arterial highway through the town about a block or two away. And the thing that really struck me that day, two things. One was I went to the city council and I realized that all this stuff I was seeing was the result of deliberate decisions on the part of somebody, mostly political, bureaucratic and government players, Uh, And the other thing I realized was um, that they were tearing down the downtown in hopes of getting developers to come and build new stuff, Uh, but then had no idea who was going to do it, and they weren't really having very much success getting people to come to town, which was a real shocker to me. So the two things that I learned that day were, number one. Uh, This doesn't just happen. It happens as the result of a a set of political and economic decisions. And number two is you can't always predict what's going to happen and things don't always turn out the way you expect.
0: Ooh, well, that kind of goes into, you said also one of the most important life lessons that you got was, uh, my town is my house. Yes. Why is that? You know, a lot
1: of people focus their entire life around their house. They devote a lot of attention to their house. They plot out every square inch of what their house is going to be. And particularly in they live in the, if they live in the suburbs or or in a rural area, they spend most of their time inside or immediately outside their house. Um, I think partly because of where and when I grew up, uh, that was never the case for me. For me, I needed the whole town to experience life and to get everything I needed. I couldn't get everything I needed inside my house Or in my yard although i had a happy childhood and so to me fullness of life has never been this is one of the reasons why i've never really been a very successful suburbanite to me the fullness of life has never been completely available to me just by living in my house i have to experience uh, my town uh, I have to experience all the different things that it provides in order for me to be happy the way some people are happy inside their house. This was also true of my father, even though he was not an urban planner or anything like that. Um, I'm happy to say it's also true of my daughter, uh, who I think learned a few lessons along the way. But but I think if people were more aware of the, the, the process by which their towns are built, uh, they would um, engage more in those towns and take advantage of them and make them and make them part of their life more more than they do. That's one of the lessons of one of the the points of of the book. But yes, in in my case, my town is my house. I try to live in places where I can walk. I, I'm visually impaired so I don't drive. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I like to live in places where where I walk but it's not only for that reason it's to be able to experience living being in the na- living in a neighborhood and living in a town the same way one might experience living inside your house
0: and that was my experience being in europe finally being even though my little apartment was small i could get out and really enjoy the city it was great
1: yes and you know There's a big difference, I think, between people who live in suburban subdivisions and if they ever walk, they simply walk for recreation around their neighborhood, right? Uh, And people who live in not just big cities, and this is one of the lessons to me, but cities and towns uh, where you can walk to experience things and experience places and actually go somewhere. That's harder to do in the United States than it is in Europe. Uh, but it is possible in pockets around the around the country. And one of the points of the book that I found was that when cities began to decline in the 1970s, I didn't expect to ever find that experience again anywhere in the United States. And in fact, uh, in my career as an urban planner, I found you know whole cities aren't necessarily like that like they are in Europe. There's only a few in the US that are. But there are many, many parts of cities where you can experience, have that European experience of living someplace, staying in a hotel, staying in an Airbnb, walking to restaurants, walking to parks, or walking to other amenities that enrich your life, sometimes even walking to work.
0: Yes. I think my only experience here growing up in Niceville is that you also talk in a book about you were able to run through the backyards of your neighborhood and it wasn't a big deal. And here in my neighborhood, we did that a little bit. We still had fences, but the kids, we all could like go around this neighborhood and how now your daughter, when you were talking about taking her back home, it was such a foreign idea for her.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, I lived in Southern California for many years when my daughter was little. You know, everybody had a fence. We were friendly, but we all had a fence in backyard. So when we went back to Auburn and I showed her my street, and I showed her how we all used to just run back and forth around everybody, through everybody's backyards all spring, summer, and fall. She just couldn't believe it. And my observation in the book is if somebody tried to do that in, in suburban Southern California today, there'd be years of litigation, right? And it is true that that's partly about the um, uh, part of the country you live in in the Northeast where there's it's snowy all winter. People are less likely, I think, to have fences and more likely to have open uh, space in between their houses. Nevertheless, the idea that family that it would be okay for a, to a family for kids who were not related to them to go ramming through their backyard every afternoon, which is what we did, uh, was a pretty foreign idea to my daughter and I think probably a pretty foreign idea to most, most people today. Most parents wouldn't permit it and and most people who didn't have kids wouldn't put up with it.
0: And that goes to like community and place, or just the time frame, or what do you think? Well, I think
1: I think that goes to a sense of community and a sense of trust, right? Auburn was a city where very at that time, for, for better or worse, very few people ever moved in or out of, so most everybody knew everybody else, and so you saw that sense of trust. There were ethnic tensions. There was a polish neighborhood and a ukrainian neighborhood that were right next to each other literally a few blocks apart they had their own church they had their own catholic school they had their own separate uh, social club and so they the dads all worked in the factories Um, and there could be tensions between those two groups as there sometimes are in urban areas you know little fights would break out on the street and so forth Uh, but i think there's a sense of community and a sense of trust Uh, that you see in a situation like that. that It is hard to replicate, I admit, it's hard to replicate today when everyone is so much more transient, Um, but also emerged in part from the idea that it was a cohesive community and most people knew each other and looked out for each other. I I don't want to try to be too nostalgic about this uh, because it does, but it does arise partly out out of the when in time that occurred. It does arise partly out of the social conditions but, to some extent, in my opinion, it also arises out of the the built uh, places that we lived in uh, we live in, and whether they are open to uh interaction or close and increasingly, I find in our society they are close, and everybody tries to wall wall themselves off
0: well, that's interesting and i it's kind of interesting getting the history of things and how we've evolved as a society and i c it definitely goes to my next question. you're talking about you know metropolises and they're thinning and thickening. Can you explain more about that? What is a thickening thickening Thickening, area?
1: A thickening and a thinning metropolis. Yes. Yeah, That was a chapter I wrote uh, based on a speech I gave at Cornell once, where I compared life in Southern California. I lived in Ventura for many years, which is kind of on the coast near Santa Barbara, and life growing up in Auburn, where uh, in one case, the population was continuing to grow, and getting it was getting more and more crowded and congested. And in the other case, in upstate New York, of course, the population was declining and thinning out. Uh, and so I was interested in the in the differences and the similarities um, between those two things. And and really, when you look at cities, you all, what you often see is the structure or any human settlement. What you often see is the human so- settlement that was created at the time of greatest population and economic growth. So for example, in in California, that was mostly after World War II, right? In New York City, that was probably the early 20th century when the subway and the skyscrapers came in. In upstate New York, it really was went back to the 19th century when uh, first the Erie Canal and then the New York Central Rail- Railroad went through the region and stimulated great economic growth. So even today in upstate New York, there are many, many very small communities that used to be completely self-contained that were created in the 19th century out in rural areas. And today they're essentially suburbs. People live there and then they drive somewhere else for work and they drive somewhere else to shop. So uh, I just thought it was an interesting contrast between parts of the country uh, where population is growing and things are becoming more congested in parts of the country, mostly in the Northeast and the Midwest, where the population is thinning out. Uh, and so it's a very different way of life.
0: So what about this suburban dense sprawl that keeps happening? It's It's like it In my town here, uh, I've noticed even in the last just five or seven years, I was down in Miami for a while, South Florida, and I came back up here, and it's like a a repetition. It's like a storage unit on the highway, and then a gas station, and then a car wash, and then a storage unit, and then a strip mall, and it just keeps repeating itself. How do you create a sense of place or not? Well, you,
1: you don't create a sense of place if you simply allow the cheapest and easiest thing to be built. And this goes back to the basic uh, point of the book, I think, which is that places are created as a result of deliberate political and economic decisions, right? The storage unit on the highway next to the gas station didn't just happen. It occurred because, it was built because, somebody who built storage units saw that there was a market for it in that location they bought a piece of land from somebody else and and it is true that we have a lot of stuff these days that goes into storage units and also there was a there was a city or a county commission that allowed that to happen without putting too many constraints on it sometimes private developers will hold themselves to a higher standard there are many great examples of of wonderful Uh, uh, built places in Florida, uh, all over Florida, actually, from uh, any time in the last 100 years. Most of the time, we just allow individual developers, individual landowners to build whatever they think they want to build in response to the market or in response to what they want to do in response to what they can get a loan for without really thinking about what it all adds up to. And, And in urban planning, there's always this tension, really, between allowing private landowners to do whatever they want and restraining what the private landowners can do in, for the benefit of the community. There's people on both sides of that issue. It comes up in court cases all the time. And there's a, there's a real tension. And And I don't advocate complete government control over what should be built. I That is not the best way to build a society, particularly in the United States. But I do think uh, there is a balance be- that has to be struck between... The desires of individual landowners who are thinking about only their property and getting people on and off of their property to do what they want to do, and the interest of the entire community f- to have something that's cohesive and hangs together and has a sense of place that people can be proud of.
0: Okay. How do we create a sense of place?
1: Well, it's that's a really interesting question, and I struggled to define that question a lot in writing the book. I'm an urban planner. I tend to think about built places. And so generally speaking, in my opinion, if you're going to create a sense of place, you have to have some strong, almost magnetic set of characteristics. You can build around uh, a, an uh, an ocean or the Gulf of Mexico or, or a lake or a river. That is one thing you can do. But you can also create actual towns uh, where people can walk. Uh, it is... It is amazing if you create a, a place where people could walk two, three blocks, almost inevitably how popular it becomes. And yet most of the time we don't do it. I would say another another really interesting thing is that if you survey people on what kind of a community they want to live in. And so, for example, when I worked in Houston at Rice University, we ran a survey every year where we asked the the same question every year. Would you rather live in a larger home on a larger suburban lot where you have to drive everywhere, or would you rather live in a smaller home on a smaller lot if that allowed you to walk to places? And and almost without exception, and this is true on national polls too, the answer comes down to be about 50-50. About half the people uh, say they want to live in a walkable neighborhood, even if it means they sacrifice home size and lot size to do it. And yet, half of our half of our built places are not walkable, are they? Uh, probably five or ten percent of them are, and that's because um, you know, sort of the development machine uh, produces, as you pointed out, certain types uh, which are geared toward um, meaning short-term market needs. I would argue that there are many people who live in single-family homes on large lots in this country who really don't want to. They would rather live in a different environment, but the the market isn't really producing what they want interestingly enough and and that's partly because developers, although they are responding to the market in some ways are are really just producing over and over again what they've produced in the past and they're working with banks who don't want to take any risks and therefore because the banks don't want to take any risks, they are reluctant to consider anything new and most of the time when somebody wants to try to build something new and different, they have to go get a very different source of financing than, than the typical bank. They have to find some rich person or, or some quirky person willing, willing to back it to pro- until it's proven that it is successful.
0: Well, that's interesting. And another problem you said about urban planning is, let's see if I could say this, quote this here, not the lack of human activity, but the lack of variety in distributing across the landscape. That's the real problem.
1: Yes. We tend to, you know, we're really, in the United States, we're really good at mass producing things. And we're really good at mass producing the same thing over and over and over again. And in building our communities, we're really good at segregating different activities. So housing goes here, uh, industrial uses go here, shopping centers go here uh we're not very good at, at mixing them up. In in my neighborhood in Houston, which is an intensely urban neighborhood, it is immediately outside of downtown Houston, what developers typically build is uh either uh, apartment buildings or restaurants. Those are the two things that uh can can afford to build with the high land costs in the neighborhood. Nobody ever builds a, a restaurant in, you know in the ground floor of an apartment building because that's too complicated. And the whole development industry is set up on the assumption that I build apartments, you build restaurants, somebody else builds uh, something
0: else. It doesn't become a, a mixed community development that they've started trying to in some places.
1: Not in the not in the way that it could. I mean, it there it, it there is a term in. Urban planning called called horizontal mixed use, which means there are a lot of different activities that are close to one another or next to each other. But but we don't mix the uses up. We don't mix the activities up nearly as much as we could, in order to make places more walkable and more pleasant a, as they do in Europe. Uh, we do that in some places, usually extremely urban. Lo- it takes an extremely urban location to do that in the United States. Uh, we do not do that in most places, and because we separate out these activities, we tend then to be tethered to our car, and that further drives us apart and makes it harder to create good places, good walkable places.
0: Well, you mentioned also in your book, the new urbanists, and that they lack a historical perspective on development. What is is the new urbanists about?
1: Well, the new urbanists are actually, it's kind of funny. They do attempt to replicate certain historical patterns of urban development. So the most famous early urban new urbanist development was seaside on the, in the panhandle of Florida, actually not far from where you grew up. Um, and that is a lovely place uh, that has a strong sense of place that draws upon many of the older uh, forms of urban development in Florida, for example, uh, from the 20s, which was the first big boom in Florida, for example, um, in, in Venice. Uh, but I think that one of the things that we have to be careful about is pretending that the whole suburban era never never occurred, and that we don't have to that we can just sort of roll over it and don't have to deal with it. So for example, I always advocate in in favor of walkable places, but at the same time, you have to recognize um, that most people will probably always drive most places. And in and you can create a walkable place to live in and a walkable place to work and a walkable place to shop, but most people drive in between those places. So you've got to figure out how to accommodate uh, uh, people's preference for the personal vehicle, even though many urban planners kind of want to wish that away.
0: Um, that's true. I saw Seaside and I was thinking, you know, back in the 80s, it was, or so it was way out there. Yep. And then, you know, I know that they... They planned it as an urban place, but it really became just um, the tourists love it because they don't have to drive when they go on vacation.
1: Well, and and isn't that interesting that back to what I said before about the survey and half of the people wanting to uh, uh, live in a place like that, one of the problems that occurs is that when you build a place like that, it tends to get very expensive. Why? Because there aren't enough of them, because people like them. Yeah, especially when they travel and they're on their vacation, people like them, uh, and so and so they tend to become very expensive because it's a supply and demand problem. There, there's far more demand for that kind of place than there is supply. So when you create a new one, which they've, which the new orbitists have done quite a bit in Florida, actually, uh, it almost inevitably becomes it almost inevitably becomes expensive and out of reach for ordinary people, unfortunately. That's because most of the development continues to follow this cookie-cutter pattern we've just discussed before. Uh, and so ordinary people don't can't afford to live in, in these kinds of locations, uh, particularly the Sun Belt and the West, where, where land is expensive.
0: Yes, and they built several other communities like that on 30A, and the tourists just mm-hmm. – they absolutely love it. And mm-hmm. I like – I love the idea, but um, it did – it drove – Now I haven't verified this, but I've been told that a seaside house is now up to twenty-two million.
1: That could very well be.
0: And but most of the jobs right there in that community are you know ten, twelve dollars an hour tourist Uh, jobs.
1: Right. Well, that's given the fact that Seaside is now a tourist destination, um, whether or not that was the original intent. One of the biggest problems we have in this country right now is that. attractive walkable tourist destinations have become extremely expensive and the people who work there can't afford to live there. We see this everywhere in the country, everywhere in the entire country, whether it's in uh, the ski towns of Colorado, beach towns in in California. This has become an enormous problem uh, and it's partly because we have have restrained the amount of housing we've built in this country over the last 30 years in a way that's bad. And also, although Seaside is a bit of an exception to this, we tend not to build lots of different types of housing in a community as we used to. 100 years ago, 120 years ago, we built houses, we built duplexes, we built small apartment buildings, we built all kinds of different types of houses for different for people to live in. And now we build mostly single family homes on on lots as big as we can. And of course, those are expensive, and increasingly there's a disconnect between between the housing we are building and the people who need to be housed. And that is that is harming our communities because this sense of this self-contained idea I talked about at the beginning where I talked about my hometown is not achievable when everybody who works there has to drive an hour and a half to get there.
0: Yes, and I found that too. Um, I was living actually in Key Largo it was really hard to find housing because mm-hmm. I really, at that time in my life, I only needed an apartment, but the majority of the housing in the Florida keys was single family residents. And it's, it created a lot of tension between workforce housing and businesses. And there wasn't, there wasn't much of a mix. There wasn't any.
1: No, you see that more and more. Uh, as I say, in the ski towns of Colorado and like Tahoe, uh, this this disconnect in Key Largo, of course, it, it's not like you have lots of land nearby to build workforce housing on, right? You're in a key. Key West is even worse. There has become this kind of what we think of as nice places, or 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 places that you know, locations that have great place amenities. As I said before, have become so desirable, uh, both as places to live, places to have second homes, and tourist destinations, that they that they drive Everybody else out, including the people who work there. Uh, and that, and again, I think that is partly a supply and demand problem. Um, we need more walkable places that people like in order so that we can have more affordable ones where people can, where ordinary people can actually live their lives.
0: Yes, that's true. And then people would makeshift houses to turn houses into apartments and it just turns into a makeshift thing.
1: Yes, that's right. In Lake Tahoe, the way that government urban planners deal with things is they create a rigid separation between housing and motels. But in fact, most of the housing is second homes that are vacant most of the time, and most of the te- motels are occupied by the by the seasonal workers. Um, so this false separation of different types of activities and t- different types of housing uh, is breaking down in the tourist towns for sure.
0: Well, I want to ask you too, I hadn't heard about the federal green belts. You said that was in the 1930s. And I got my master's degree in landscape architecture. I was really interested in this chapter. Um, I had no idea that back then that they used green elements as focal points in cities versus buildings.
1: Yes. Well, and this is part of the reason why urban renewal came about after World War II. But there was a belief in the 20s and 30s, 90 to 100 years ago, that cities were unhealthy, which they were more unhealthy than they are now, and they had a paucity of green space, and that there was going to be significant suburbanization no matter what, which which turned out to be true, uh, but that the, but that these but the suburbs should be built in a way that could be both affordable to ordinary people and also that they could have more access to nature. The federal Greenbelt Towns was a program of the Resettlement Administration during the New Deal during FDR that was designed to create new suburbs that were modest in their amenities but still had enough natural elements that, that people would enjoy nature and would not feel boxed in by cities as they had in the past. Now, subsequently, a lot of those ideas were used in the suburbanization of America between the 40s and the 70s. Uh, but of course, a lot of those ideas also uh, went away, got, got value engineered out of the suburbs.
0: So you're an urban planner, you've done all this research and study, and you decided to be the mayor Of your city. Did that change your perspective on placemaking? Why? Why not? How did that work out?
1: Yes and no. It took me from the theoretical to the practical. Um, For many years, I had been writing about this stuff and writing about what good places consisted of. Uh, When I became the mayor of the town I lived in for many years, Santerra, California, my hometown, my adopted hometown, I realized two things. Uh, Number one was that I had to get past just talking about things and figuring out how to deliver, which was difficult because I was mayor during the Great Recession and nobody was building anything. But also I had to be very sensitive to people's own sense of place and their understanding of what made place important to them. In Ventura today, there's a significant conflict between people who – uh, have lived there a long time and value a small town feel and people who believe that uh, there's not enough housing in California now and a lot of it needs to be built so it was very difficult to balance those points of view and it was very difficult to try to get anything done during the great recession but the big that was the big transition in my life between being somebody who mostly wrote about things and somebody who had to Provide political leadership in order to get things done, and and improve uh, the places uh, in the town where I lived. Not just talk about how they could be better.
0: So, do you feel like that now that you kind of made that transition from theoretical to a real leader? Um, what did you accomplish?
1: What we accomplished mostly when I was in office was to change. The rules to make it more possible to build uh, better places. Um, A lot of those better places were not built when I was in office because of the Great Recession. Many of those buildings are being built and and public amenities are being built now. Uh, And one of the things I think that is lessons that I take away from that is that in order to build good places and in order to build good communities, you have to take a very long view uh and when you're a politician you probably have a four-year window that uh, at most that you can think about uh before you have to run for re-election so there's a bit of a disconnect there uh and so there has to be a very strong set of community players and developers wanting to do the right thing in the log over the long run in order to um in order to stick with it and make sure things get done
0: Well, I think that goes to the next question. You said when you were in San Diego that you did it without even owning a car and talking about a mix of Zipcar, transportation, and Uber and Lyft. Can you tell us what about transportation and how it plays in the role of place?
1: Cars and place do not always go together. In order to have a strong sense of place, you got to get rid of the cars one way or another, one way to do it is to have a walkable district and put the cars in garages on the on the edge. That's very common. Uh increasingly though, what we find is that there are alternatives driving your own car. I mean, I don't drive anymore because I'm visually impaired and and that is kind of liberating, it's annoying and frustrating, but it's also liberating in a certain way because it has made me realize you know, we equate mobility with owning and operating our own car how, and the more I thought about it, the more I've thought, why would you own, operate, and maintain your own car and drive it under all circumstances, like at night and when you're sick and all that, unless you absolutely had to and you had no choice, which is the case for most people. But in cities today, there are many alternatives. Um, There are more transit alternatives. Those are struggling after COVID, but there is an improvement there. And the real revolution has been in, uh, Zipcar, Uber, and Lyft, where you can get around. You you can have access to, car, to a car without actually owning one. And in the case of Uber and Lyft, you can actually transport yourself in a personal vehicle from one place to another without having to worry where to park the car. Uh, I do this very frequently, and it allows me to go in the middle of a very dense district and not not ever worry about parking. Can you imagine how liberating how liberating that could be? So, at least in cities where I think on the verge of a pretty dramatic change, where um, we are not tethered to op actually operating the vehicle that we are in ourselves, and 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 not necessarily owning it.
0: Well, I'll go back to my experience in Europe, and I call it my planes, trains, and automobiles. There was a few places I drove my car, and it was so awesome. I got the Audubon. I did the Sunday drive, and I had the freedom, and Then I loved being closer to the city and I could take the train and then I took a plane and it was such an enjoyable trip to be able to have a transportation mix.
1: Yes. Yes, I agree with that. When I go, I go to the Bay Area frequently and I often fly into SFO and then just take BART to wherever I'm going. And that's, and I, it just changes your entire extensive experience of, of place. You're much more in the place and that's really great.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna ask you two questions. What's your favorite town and what's your favorite street? Well, my
1: favorite, oh God. Uh, my favorite town is probably still Ventura, California, which is a uh, has a wonderful pre-war downtown right next to the beach. And as I say in the book, my favorite street is Main Street in downtown Ventura, which they've now several, closed off permanently several blocks of so that they can have outdoor dining, very European. <laughs>
0: That's really cool, I like it when they do that. What was your favorite part about writing this book?
1: My favorite part about writing this book was seeing all the different things i have written over a long period of time and how they kind of all hang together. And I would say also finally being able to process my experience as a child and a young adult back in Auburn and understanding how it shaped me as an urban planner. To, to really be able to play that out and you see that in the first couple of chapters. Uh, was very rewarding.
0: Now it's time for the parlor game that you mentioned in your book. So what does urban planning have to do with movies? So the movie that (laughs) I picked for you is Top Gun 2. I'm going to make it a little challenging. What about Top Gun 2 and urban planning? Every...
1: I was I would say, and this is a joke in the book, that every movie is about urban planning. But what I really mean is that every movie is rooted in place. You Now, Top Gun 2, the place is a little weird. It's several thousand feet up. Um, but nevertheless, Top Gun 2 was filmed mostly in Ridgecrest, California, outside of Los Angeles in the desert. So every time you see, I, I mean, if you think of any movie, that is meaningful to you the location where people are interacting is really important you cannot imagine the godfather without thinking of little italy in new york right um you cannot imagine most you cannot imagine television shows you cannot imagine um uh, seinfeld without thinking about the upper west side of, of manhattan and so filmed entertainment whether movies or, or tv are extremely rooted in place. And one of the really interesting things that i found is that those qualities that make you a good urban planner also make you a good Hollywood location manager because you are looking for place and you are looking for that special uh, things in place. Uh, there have been, I've known a number of urban planners who've been Hollywood location managers, including My childhood friend, Mike Fantasia from Auburn, who was trained as a planner, uh, became a location manager and was the location manager on Top Gun too. And so he was the one in charge of going out and making sure that Ridgecrest was the right place and you could get the airspace and all that. And so I I just think filmed entertainment is dripping with place. There is always a connection between, uh, between the sense of place and the story you are telling.
0: And Seaside had the Truman Show.
1: Seaside had the Truman Show. That's correct.
0: Oh, that's so funny. I think that's so true. Um, Well, Bill, I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, and it's been a delight to have you here this Sunday morning. My cup of Earl Grey tea is about finished. Can you tell the audience what's your next big project now? I'm trying to think about what I want to write next. For a long time, I've
1: wanted to write a book called The Future of Where?, which is, all about, which is really, again, all about the role place plays in our lives. And I had a book proposal to do that, which got completely blown apart by COVID. Um, because COVID has really, we didn't even talk about this, but COVID has changed our sense of place. So I'm hoping to go back and, and redo a, a book proposal called The Future of Where, which really talks about what role place and location and, and, and centrality of place plays in, in our lives in the post-COVID world.
0: Well, we have something to look forward to from you.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: Well, Bill, again, thank you so much for being here today. And uh, to everybody in the listening audience, this book is Place and Prosperity, How Cities Help Us to Connect and Innovate by William Fulton, published by Island Press in 2022. And thank you so much for listening today. Thank you, Bill.
1: Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.